0: A year ago next week, Donald Trump was elected president of the United States. How's that working out for him? Welcome back to Cup of Politics. I am Paul Singer, USA Today's Washington correspondent. It has been a year since Donald Trump was elected president and ushered in a new era of presidential rhetoric, among other things. His election sent shockwaves through both the Democratic and the Republican parties, However, you might be interested to note that Americans do not appear to be fleeing to Canada in droves, as some had promised before the election. I went back and I checked the numbers this week. The the number of Americans relocating to Canada this year is about on pace with last year, which was about on pace with the year before, somewhere around 8,000 people. So all of you who said, if Donald Trump is elected, I'm moving to Canada, you probably lied. Nevertheless, in some ways, President Trump has transformed the country and, not least of all, has transformed the way our newsrooms cover the presidency. We asked USA Today's Washington Enterprise editor, Ray Locker, to join us this week to talk about where we are one year after Election Day. Ray Locker, thanks for joining us here on Cup of Politics.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: So you've been in Washington a while, right? Mm-hmm. You've served at various times as politics editor, White House editor, national security editor, chief cook and bottle washer. <laughs> uh, now you're uh, uh, editing a bunch of our uh, investigative enterprise stories. So let's start with the newsroom question sure. first. How has President Trump transformed the way we
1: do our work as reporters? Well, our day starts a lot earlier than it used to. I mean, anytime around 6 a.m., we're going to see tweets from him. Um, Some of them we have to jump on, some we don't, but we're working far earlier than we used to and sometimes deep into the night because he has vast reservoirs of energy that he expends on tweeting and making news that we can't ignore it. I've noticed just in our newsroom that in this administration, there is much
0: less certainty about what time something is over for the day. Right. It used to be they would give us what they called a lid at whatever time it was, you know, five o'clock, six Mm -hmm. o'clock, everyone go home. But that's not really the last word in this administration.
1: No, what happens very often is some other news organization will break an enterprise story about some element of what's happening with the Trump administration that we have to respond to. So while the. White House isn't necessarily putting out information on its own there's information about the White House that is newsworthy and that demands our attention so and that can go up till you know midnight and that's also an interesting challenge for us because
0: on the one hand we want to be breaking our own news but on right. the other hand we have to be keeping up with news that other people is breaking that's right and it becomes sort of this exhausting process for everyone of having it, to have your head on a swivel all the time
1: it's totally exhausting it's asymmetrical you know it's like guerrilla warfare you don't know where the threat is going to come from you know at any time so you think you have a pattern set and then that pattern gets blown away the next day because there's some new wrinkle that you didn't anticipate but why is that different than covering George W Bush or covering Barack Obama they had a message they had much better message discipline than this administration has they had a president who knew where he was in that whole mix this president can't be controlled by any of those people. And, uh, you know, I think the adjective mercurial fits him very well. Um, and that also means very unpredictable. And unpredictable for our
0: staff. We've also reorganized our own operations right. to focus in part on just the daily news coming out of the mm-hmm. White House. But also, like we now have separate teams trying to look into this sort of ever sprawling conversation about who and what Donald Trump is connected to.
1: Yeah, we have a Russia team, for example, and they're looking at, you know, all manner of things involving Russia, you know, doing a great job on real estate transactions, tracing LLCs that people use to buy, you know, properties that Trump owns. You know, whether those are Russian involved LLCs or not but that's one way and oh we did a great story on people who go to his country clubs and the connections that they may have you know and that takes staff resources and takes people who are doing other good stories and puts them in that channel
0: and this is also the difference that between Donald Trump and other administrations is that this president remains the top name top line name on a major international corporation that's right uh, with assets all over the world and properties that he goes to visit himself pretty regularly
1: that's right he's you know increased the membership fees at mar-a-lago so he's making more money from that you know he's having more members at his various clubs elsewhere he's making money off being president because there are people who want to belong to those clubs on the off chance that they get access to him or the people around him right so that's another yet another channel that we
0: dig into let me ask about the tweets i'm interested in this in your view of the tweets those are presidential statements. That's right. right. They are sort of official statements of policy. Should we ignore some of them?
1: No, I don't think ignore is the right word. I think you discount some because maybe they're repetitive things that he said before. Okay, well, he's saying this again. But you ignore them at your own peril because they will become a thing that day uh, or for a matter of days. I mean, you look at some of the things about the Charlottesville situation You know those incidents there; those were a long-running story. Things about Congresswoman Frederica Wilson, and uh, you know the the widow of the guy who was killed in uh, Niger. That that becomes a thing, and driven by tweets,
0: right? And so we could just look away and say, ah, he's just tweeting. But in fact, they do become part of the news conversation and the way the nation perceives him and his presidency.
1: I mean, the last poll I saw is more than 60% of the people said... They don't believe him, that he's not trustworthy. And it tracks back to things like that. You know, he said that he didn't say things to Myesha Johnson, the widow. Well, he did. And then he dragged in his own chief of staff, John Kelly, who then went out in the White House briefing room and said something that was immediately refutable about Frederick Wilson, Mm -hmm. attributed comments to her that the video shows she did not make. So a tweet in the morning turns into a story for a week. Right. And meanwhile, any previous president would have people making that go away, and the president himself would not get into that, but this president does. And that's part of it, right,
0: is the president doesn't get into it. The president stands aloof, lets that's that right. go on, and then someone puts out an official statement, or the president makes an official statement at the podium, right, and we move on.
1: Right. I mean, you look at the case of uh, Bo Bergdahl, the soldier who left his post in Afghanistan, was captured and then brought back. He's you know, on trial now in Fort Bragg. Presidential statements in tweets are becoming part of that case to determine his punishment because things that the president tweeted may have poisoned the jury pool, may have uh, caused problems for the case. That's a fascinating. Yeah. Point. And now nobody else would do that. Right. right. Um, and that's a problem. So let's talk about the policy parts of this.
0: He was elected a year ago this week. Mm-hmm. Um, he has managed to do some of the things he said he was going to do, and some of that might have been surprising to people. Let's talk about some of the things he's actually achieved. Right. Let's, I mean, we can start, obviously, with a thing he likes to remind everybody about is he did get a Supreme Court nominee through the U.S. Senate, a guy named Neil Gorsuch, who's going to be there for quite a long time. Yeah. But beyond that, he
1: actually is making significant transformations of the regulatory environment well yeah i mean you look at epa with scott pruitt they're not doing the things that obama had them doing they're rolling back some of those regulations they're doing things that you know make it easier to be in the fossil fuel business um that's one clear thing now it's too early to tell what happens from from all of that the market is deciding a lot of those things like they're not using coal Right, He's not bringing coal back. He's doing things that want to do that, but the market has decided coal is not where it's at, and it's getting away from fossil fuel. The market is deciding that electric cars are a big deal, right? and that's going to diminish the demand for oil and other fossil fuels. So he's doing those things. Now, whether it will be effective remains to be seen, but he said he was going to do it, and he's doing it.
0: Uh, and he's also, to some degree, had some success at sort of unpacking Obamacare, the, the Affordable Care
1: Act. Well, he's you know doing things. He signed an executive order in one of his first couple of days in office that would make it easier for people to not pay the individual mandate or the penalty. Um, he's not advertising for the Affordable Care Act, whose open enrollment period started on November 1st, and he's not doing the cost-sharing subsidies to insurance companies that help lower the premiums for people who are buying their own health insurance.
0: Okay, so that is sort of a demonstration of the successes he's having, but healthcare is also a demonstration of where he's
1: failing to succeed. Well, because he promised better health care for less money, and he would get rid of the Affordable Care Act and bring in a replacement that would make everything possible. But that didn't happen, because every replacement that was brought out without the benefit of hearings you know, was scored by the Congressional Budget Office as a deficit buster and something that would take away coverage from other people, from billions of people. And enough Republicans in Congress, along with all of the Democrats, said, we don't want to do that.
0: So, you're editing a lot of our health policy Mm -hmm. stuff these days. What kind of shape is Obamacare actually in?
1: Well, you know, it has problems with the individual market, primarily for people who are buying their insurance who don't get tax subsidies. And about 80% of people do get tax subsidies, so that's helpful for them. But if you're, say, A married couple where one spouse is on Medicare and the other is not old enough to be on Medicare, you're looking at a very sizable monthly health care premium. That's tough. And because you have to buy a certain kind of policy that adheres to the law, you're going to have to pay more money. And a lot of people look at that and get sticker shock, and justifiably so. But that's a small slice of the people who are covered by that. Basically, if you have employer-sponsored health insurance, you're in good shape. Uh, If you're on Medicare or Medicaid, you're in better shape than you were before. So there are problems with the law. I think even it's most staunchest advocates agree that there are things that need to be fixed. But it's not, you know, it's not a loser. You know, it hasn't collapsed. It has not collapsed. I mean, despite what the president is trying to do. And most analysts say that what he's doing is sabotaging the law. And he says that, actually. I mean, he, he has said pretty clearly, we will make this not work right. until the Democrats
0: come back and help right. us.
1: Right, and then blames, you know, the design of the law. It's like blaming, you know, the design of your car for the fact that you don't put oil in the engine. Right. Um, you know, it's it's self-inflicted. Right.
0: I want to talk a little bit about, we because, you know, it's the elephant in the room. Mm-hmm. It's hard to talk about the successes and failures of the Trump administration without talking about this Russia investigation that kind of looms over everything. right? right? Uh, Robert Mueller is investigating Russian influence in the election, and specifically whether there was any coordination between the Trump campaign and Russia. This week, we had our first criminal charges in that case. The White House has been pretty clear. They expect this to wrap up. It has nothing to do with the president. It's going to move along pretty quickly, and by the end of the year, it'll all be done. From what you've seen in the charges just this week, what's your sense of that? Is this something that is going to pass through the system over the next couple of months and be done early the next year
1: <laughs> no <laughs> no <laughs> i mean of course they're going to say that that's what everybody says who's under an investigation there's nothing to see here let's move along this will be over with soon it doesn't have anything to do with me and individually each case may not have something to do with the president but when you take the cumulative effect of them it points to one person and that's the president i mean Paul Manafort was his campaign manager, a guy who had multiple ties to Russia and Russian allied forces in Ukraine. And he got hired anyway, you know, and we all I remember, you know, more than a year ago when that happened. Why did he hire this guy? Well, he did. And that brings a bunch of problems. But
0: now just to point out, of course, the charges against Manafort that were released this week so far. Right. Are charges about his prior work basically hiding money that he was being paid by ukrainian interests before he was trump's campaign manager and this is again how the how the white house can say well this has nothing to do with us
1: you hired him as your campaign manager knowing all this stuff was out there it does affect you if you're the president now that's true that this specific charge has to do with things before he worked for trump but That's what happens when you have a special prosecutor. He gets in all this evidence and he grabs, you know, the first crime that he can see. So Manafort is charged with this. But that doesn't mean that that's the only thing Manafort is good for. If you have him as a defendant and you think that, you know, you have a chance to convict this guy, you're going to squeeze him. That's what federal prosecutors do. That's what all prosecutors do. That's what we do as journalists. We get a good source who's going to lead us to another good source, and we extract as much information as we can to get to a bigger story, and prosecutors do the same thing. So Manafort and Rick Gates, his deputy, are valuable in that regard. And it's possible we've not seen the last charges related to them either.
0: Oh, absolutely. The other one that I'll mention, but without getting into too, you know, gory detail... Of course, there's this guy, George Papadopoulos. Mm -hmm. Um, The gist of it is he was a member of President Trump's uh, Foreign Policy Advisory Committee. President Trump introduced him by name, sat at a table with him and had a picture taken with Mm -hmm. all of them at their meeting. Um And this guy was having email conversations with people he believed to be Russian officials. Right. Believed that they were going to be leaking him dirt on Hillary Clinton and told other people in the campaign that he was doing these things. That's right. Now, again, the president will tell you and then the president's people from the podium have said nothing to do with the president, low level guy, volunteer guy. But again, one doesn't believe that this ends with a guy named George Papadopoulos.
1: Oh, absolutely won't end with him. I mean, here's a guy who got in trouble for lying to the FBI. And the FBI said, wait a minute, we have proof that you're lying to us. And that then induced him to plead guilty. So they have proof of something. They probably have all of his emails, all of his texts, all of his cell phone calls, all of his bank records. So they're building a portrait of what he knows and what you do in a situation like that is, who else did George Papadopoulos talk to? Well, there's this mysterious professor in London. They're gathering information on him. Allegedly, Vladimir Putin's niece was somebody he was talking to. Of course, Vladimir They're... Putin doesn't have a niece, but still. Well, right? whatever. <laughs> I mean, who was, knows, right? you know? <laughs> I mean, which is just all part of what's so crazy about this thing. But you... Right. You build your case that way. Right. And these are professional prosecutors. And Robert Mueller ran the FBI for more than 10 years. He knows what he's doing. And he has people who know what they're doing. Uh, You're a Watergate expert.
0: Someone told me that there was a George Papadopoulos in that case, too.
1: George Papadopoulos was the head of the Greek military junta in the late 60s up to the mid-70s, and he had passed money from Greece through a guy named Thomas Pappas, who was a Greek millionaire, that ended up in the Nixon campaign. <laughs> but that was it. I mean, okay, it was well, peripheral.
0: Great. Small-time ironies in yeah. our scandal coverage here. One last thing uh, while we're on these mm-hmm. sort of small-time scandals. You, you also, in your Man of Many Hats uh, career here, honchoed our coverage last week of the release of thousands of pages of JFK assassination documents. Did we learn anything new from all that stuff?
1: We did learn things that are new, but they weren't necessarily related to the assassination. We didn't find a new suspect. Um, You know, I think that Lee Harvey Oswald was still the lone assassin, and I think that's the conclusion that most people have from this. But we learned things about what the Kennedy administration was doing to Cuba. Mm -hmm. I had a story on Monday about that that looked at, you know, specific battle plans to invade Cuba in 1962 before the Cuban Missile Crisis. You know, troop numbers, what kind of thing, you know, what kind of units we were going to use to invade if that happened. You know, all that was really interesting, but didn't have anything to do with the actual assassination.
0: Right. And the assassination story has not changed dramatically over the past week.
1: No, not. I mean, certainly not for me.
0: Yeah. Ray Locker, thank you for joining us here on Cup of Politics. How do we follow you on Twitter? RLocker12. At RLocker12. Thanks very much for being with us. Thanks for having me. As always, you can keep up with our coverage of the Trump presidency, the Trump tweets, the Trump scandals, the Trump victories, and all the rest of the news on USAToday.com. If you like, you can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Singer News. And if you liked what you heard today, please subscribe to Cup of Politics on Apple Podcasts. It's a free and easy way to make sure you don't miss an episode. You can also find us on SoundCloud, Stitcher, wherever else you get your podcasts. Special thanks to our producer Taylor Macon for making this thing sound so good. And thanks as always to Chris Moscatello for our theme music.